This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson. This week, anxiety, dread, and the search for peace of mind. Sometimes it just becomes overwhelming and completely debilitating, and sometimes it's in response to no threat at all. Getting past anxiety when Radio Health Journal returns. National Kidney Month is a good time to learn about how to protect your kidneys. For example, maintaining a healthy weight is especially important for people who have or are at risk for kidney disease. But how do you do that? Lauren Gleason, Senior Director of Nutrition Services for Fresenius Kidney Care, has some tips. Focus on eating more fresh, unprocessed foods, including fresh fruits and vegetables, fresh meats, and unrefined carbohydrates, such as brown rice. Be sure to include good fats like olive and canola oil and some protein with every meal to help you feel fuller longer. People with kidney disease should consult their doctor or dietitian about some fresh foods that may be hard for their kidneys to handle, such as bananas and citrus fruits or too much protein. And here are some tricks. Keep healthy foods at eye level in the pantry and fridge with less healthy foods out of sight. And choose smaller plates. You'll eat less. Losing just 5% of your body weight, even if you're still overweight, can reduce your blood pressure and thus your risk for kidney disease. Talk to your doctor before starting any diet or exercise program. Find out more at FreseniusKidneyCare.com. Anxiety is something we all feel now and then. It's a natural evolutionary trait, part of the fight-or-flight response that's helped humans survive for millennia. Today, we're not running away from saber-toothed tigers, but it's still natural to feel anxiety under stress. Like before taking a test, for example, or asking your boss for a raise. However, for some people, anxiety is off the charts, overwhelming and debilitating even when there's no apparent threat. People who have really severe anxiety disorders suffer from clinical anxiety really badly. You know, there's some of them have not been able to leave their house for years at a time or are unable to travel or unable, if they have severe social anxiety, to hold jobs and be in relationships just because the mere act of interacting with other people becomes so anxiety-producing. That's Scott Stossel, editor of The Atlantic magazine and author of My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. Stossel has suffered from severe anxiety ever since he was a kid. That's when most acute anxiety disorders take root. When I was a kid, anytime I was away from my parents, I would be convinced that they had abandoned me or had died or had died in a car crash. And I literally paced grooves in my carpet of my bedroom because, you know, even if they were late, if they were 10 minutes before they were supposed to be home, I would be absolutely convinced that I was never going to see them again. As I've gotten older, you know, my sort of first and still most longstanding phobia is a metaphobia, which sounds idiosyncratic and weird to people who have never heard of it or don't have it, but many people do. We're now learning from sort of internet research, but a metaphobia is the pathological fear of vomiting. So, you know, when I was a kid, if I was ever exposed, and even as an adult, if I'm exposed to someone who's sick, I end up compulsively washing my hands. I have to leave the house. If someone in the house is sick, I spend much of my time sort of non-productively analyzing how to avoid contracting stomach viruses. Stossel also has claustrophobia, a fear of enclosed spaces. He's also afraid of heights, cheese, fainting, flying in an airplane, germs, and speaking in public. Sometimes it can be what they call endogenous panic attacks, and they just sort of strike from nowhere, where suddenly you feel this sense emotionally of overwhelming dread and terror, but physiologically it's like your body's gone into meltdown, and people often think that they're dying and turn up in emergency rooms because they think they're having a heart attack because you begin sweating, you get dizzy, you feel nauseous, you have other gastric distress, you start shaking and trembling, you get tingling in your hands and your feet. It's accompanied with this just overwhelming sense of dread and a kind of need to escape, and I've had that happen to me 
thousands of times over the course of my lifetime. And unfortunately, sometimes it happens at work and I have to kind of run and hide in a stairwell or something like that. Researchers don't know whether clinical anxiety is an emotional, chemical, psychological, or spiritual problem. Stossel says it's probably all of the above. Once one or more members of a family tree have generalized anxiety disorder or some other form of anxiety, it's much, much more likely that many other members of that family tree will also develop it. And they've now even begun to isolate some of the constellations of genes that lead to anxious temperaments. So partly it is genetic. Clinical anxiety has been documented in the annals of history from Hippocrates and Plato to Darwin and Freud, and every era presumes it's the most anxious. But Stossel says people today really are more anxious than ever. We have more potentially paralyzing choices to make in life. Few things are clear-cut, even when we go to the grocery store. What we do about debilitating anxiety has changed as well. We still often medicate it. For example, Hippocrates suggested drinking wine. In the Victorian age, it was laudanum. But now we have more choices. These days, the main treatments are, you know, there's an array of medications that you can take that treat it at its source kind of in the brain. But the kind of cutting edge psychological treatments, kind of therapies that there's a lot of evidence to support their efficacy are cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which basically involves a sort of form of exposure therapy, which is, you know, directly confronting the thing that makes you anxious, but in the company of a therapist with sort of guided deep breathing and relaxation, learning that you can confront the thing that scares you without having it overwhelm you, and then reframing, they call it cognitive reframing, changing how you think about things. And that can be very effective. A lot of research shows it's as effective as medication, but doesn't have side effects and dependency issues. And then mindfulness meditation, there's all kinds of new evidence that this practice which sort of emerged from the East, but is now being adopted in the West. That's a long list of possible therapies, and Stossel has tried them all. In my own life, I would not have been able to survive and thrive and be productive as I have without access to various forms of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. And there are many people for whom the difference between being completely debilitated and unable to function and being able to be out in the world and being productive is a pill or some combination of pills. So I'm not anti-medication. That said, all things being equal, if you can manage your anxiety without medication, you're better off because you're avoiding the risks of side effects and dependency issues. And there are probably a lot of people who are getting medication who don't really need it just because it's easy for physicians uh, and they get reimbursed by the insurance companies at the same rate for doing what they call a 15-minute psychopharmacology consult rather than a full 50-minute therapeutic hour. But whether one is medicated or not, the good news is that anxiety levels do seem to decrease naturally with age. There's a lot of research that shows that as you get into your 50s and into middle age, both anxiety and depression tend to decrease for a variety of reasons that researchers theorize either have to do with kind of changing expectations of what you're going to get out of life and becoming more accepting of yourself and then maybe actually neurobiological changes to your brain that make you more even keeled and content. So usually getting older can actually relieve anxiety. Stossel has also had to take a good long look at his anxiety as well. He says just writing his book has relieved his anxiety levels, at least somewhat. Simply the act of finishing the book and having it come out and having the world not end, you know, I've sort of wrestled with the shame and stigma of anxiety. That was therapeutic. I also have sort of done forced exposure therapy and having to do a lot of public speaking and stuff in that. You know, I've gotten better at managing the medication to do that and just with practice you get better. I would say my overall level of anxiety is moderately reduced. But is it gone or am I cured? No, I definitely still have bad episodes and you have to resort to medication. But overall, on balance, it's been helpful and I still retain the hope that I'll continue to 
improve and maybe someday be largely in remission, if not fully cured. And it's also been incredibly gratifying for Stossel to hear from many people who've thanked him for bringing the issue of anxiety to light. It's been quite striking and gratifying to hear from not only friends and colleagues, but also total strangers and including some celebrities who say, this is what I've suffered with all these years. I'm glad to see, you know, it's like you're articulating from within my own head. And, you know, thank you for talking openly about this. It's made me feel less alone or more comfortable or more comfortable talking about it myself, including from some psychotherapists who say that, you know, they've had a kind of lifelong coming to terms with their anxiety and that reading the book helped them with that process. And I had other friends write to me or talk to me and say, you know, the book made them feel good because they thought, well, you know, I thought I was anxious, but at least I'm not as messed up as he is. So they felt better. (laughs) You can learn more about Scott Stossel and find a link to his book, My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind through a link on our website at radiohealthjournal.net. You can always find our shows on iTunes and Stitcher. Our writer-producer this week is Polly Hansen. Our production directors are Sean Waldron and Nick Hofstra. I'm Nancy Benson. Radio Health Journal returns with Medical Notes in just a moment. As we age, changes in vision can be much more serious than a need for stronger glasses. Without treatment, diseases like cataracts, glaucoma, or age-related macular degeneration can lead to blindness. But many seniors haven't had an eye exam in some time. Ophthalmologist Dr. John Berdahl says Eye Care America can help. The American Academy of Ophthalmology's Eye Care America program is designed for medically underserved seniors who haven't been to an ophthalmologist in three or more years. Eligible patients are matched with a nearby volunteer ophthalmologist for a comprehensive medical eye exam and up to one year of care for any disease diagnosed during the initial visit, often at no cost. Launched in 1985, Eye Care America is one of the largest public service programs in American medicine. Find out if you, your friends, or family members are eligible. Visit aao.org slash eyecareamerica. That's aao.org slash eyecareamerica. Medical Notes this week. People who have gone to the hospital for treatment of a mental health disorder have an increased risk of stroke for months afterward. A study presented to the International Stroke Conference in Houston shows that people going to the hospital for psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, and PTSD have triple the risk of a stroke in the next month and double the risk for the next year or more. Scientists speculate that mental illness may provoke the body's fight-or-flight mechanism, which can raise blood pressure and stroke risk. Early risers may be healthier than people who sleep in. A study in the journal Obesity shows that early birds tend to eat more balanced diets than night owls. They also eat earlier in the day, which helps with weight loss and lowers the risk of diabetes and heart disease. And finally, many Americans are working from home at least part of the time. And a new poll shows we like it that way. However, a little bit of office camaraderie is a good thing. The Gallup survey finds that 43% of employees work remotely at least part of the time and that the most engaged workers are those who spend three to four days a week working from home. People who work in the office all the time or at home all the time are the least engaged employees. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cancer killer in the United States. Unlike many other cancers, it can be prevented with screening. That's why the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy is asking people to embrace the theme of PrEP, Scope, Live. 
According to ASGE President Ken McQuaid, age is the most important risk factor. Everyone should be screened for colorectal cancer starting at age 50 or even earlier for people with other risk factors. Colonoscopy is the most effective screening test and the only one that can actually prevent colon cancer. Now, for many people, the hardest part about a colonoscopy is showing up, and the first step to making that happen is to make your appointment. So please, get it scheduled now. Then, buddy up with a friend and agree to drive each other to your colonoscopies. I promise you, you and the people who care about you will be glad you did. Find out more about getting screened and why it's important at screenforcoloncancer.org. That's screen, the number four, coloncancer.org. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.